It's Tuesday, October 24th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. U.S., pretty important country, right? You know, definitely top four. You got Suriname, you got Guam. What? Guam's part of the U.S.? All right, top three then, definitely. So when you have a very important, I would say critically important entity like the United States of America, you should probably give some thought about how to staff it. No? Well, the guy in charge, that position, he gets a lot of attention, rightly so. President, important, acknowledged as such, has his own plane, they play his own song when he walks in a room. People start trying to take his job, I don't know, two years in advance, or in the case of Gavin Newsom, five years in advance. So we take the job at the top pretty seriously. We also are pretty serious about the 50 subregions, state governors. We pay attention to those. And then speaker of state houses, president of state senates. Yeah, all of those, there's someone in place doing the job. And you know what? I say that's good. Other important staffing decisions are made throughout the country. Police chiefs, treasurers, sometimes called comptroller, and then we debate, is it controller, is it comptroller? But they're staffed. The judges, the superintendents of schools, the city councils, all staffed with people, 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 all the way down. People want the jobs. We want to give people the jobs. We need them to do the jobs. But you know what position goes unfulfilled? We just really don't have any kind of decent mechanism to get it filled. It turns out, for getting an ass in the seat, the position of third in charge, the third person in line to run the entire United States, that person, who that will be, merely a hypothetical and not a strong hypothetical. I mean, maybe because it's that the person second in charge is not decided by you know such a robust process, but it's basically who will be good to fulfill a promise, maybe get you know three extra electoral votes. So that's not great. We could do better on that hiring procedure. But then when it comes to numero trace, we're just out of ideas. We're not even trying. You know, yesterday I was listening to the ALCS on the radio, the American League Championship Series. And the announcers were saying Bruce Bochy, the manager of the Texas Rangers, he likes three catchers. He likes to carry three catchers. Really good manager. The Rangers are going to the World Series. And a hallmark of Bruce Bochy's method is the guy carries three catchers, meaning he doesn't just have one main catcher. He has a backup catcher. Everyone has a backup catcher. But then Bruce Bochy goes the extra distance, he has a third one on the roster. If one of the two main guys gets hurt, or if Bruce Bochy wants to pinch run for the main catcher. Anyway, a lot of options. Very logical, very smart. Everyone's crediting Bruce Bochy because he knows how important, and this is a sign of his intelligence, his excellent managerial stewardship, he knows how important it is to have a person third in line to be catcher for the Texas Rangers we don't have the same standard for the president of the United States. I know some of you are saying, well, third in line for the president, technically, Mike, isn't it? Second in line of succession. I'm saying, you're right. You're right. You can think of it that way. And the reason you do think of it that way, and the fact popped into your head, is that you had a good civic education. And you were taught that it is important for the United States to have a known quantity who is third in line for the presidency. President... Whoever holds that role does assume, immediately upon being sworn in, the mantle of most powerful person ever to have lived in all of human history. That's true. The United States is just getting more and more powerful, can do more and more things, can reach into more and more places. Every new president is the most powerful person ever to have lived in human history. Then there's the successor 
who they take seriously. They protect and they force her to travel separately. They make sure she stays healthy and can serve as the most powerful person in the history of the human species. I mean, we know it's important, right? The specific person who's second in charge is the kind of person where the notion of having her be in charge shapes debates, lands on the cover of magazines. Can she be in charge? Shouldn't she be in charge? Because we know it's really important to have that second person who might be in charge. And then the person after that, no one. It's just no one. It's been that way for, uh, we're going on a month now. Could it be Tom Ember? Yeah, probably not. Could it be nine other guys? Yeah, who knows? Is it nine? Is it eight? I don't know. Is it even important? Yes, it is super important. Why have we left it to the Republicans? Not all the Republicans. Don't want to blame them. Just any five Republicans. Why have we given them the veto? It's because we don't have a well-thought-out system. Because I guess when they were drawing it up, they weren't supremely confident that they had a good thing on their hands. The Articles of Confederation didn't work. They thought a lot about the presidency. They got to the second person. Then I guess they made a list. Third, most important person. When will that ever come up? Well, it's coming up now. What a system. Or maybe, what? A system? No, there's not a system. Maybe it's just best to move to the Northern Mariana Islands. What? Also part of America? Oh, man. Now I feel bad for them. On the show today, speech and Israel, but specifically speech that would criticize Israel is being shut up here and in Israel, and that's not a good thing. But first, we continue our conversation with Melissa DeRosa, who is out with a new memoir titled What's Left Unsaid, My Life at the Center of Power, Politics, and Crisis. Today, we focus on the sexual assault allegations against Governor Andrew Cuomo. Melissa DeRosa, up next. Melissa DeRosa was the closest aide and top advisor to former New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo. Her new memoir is titled What's Left Unsaid, My Life at the Center of Power, Politics, and Crisis. Yesterday, we talked about getting through the pandemic. Today, I begin by establishing my coverage of the sexual harassment complaints against the governor. So on this program, I did say that no one could literally know if Andrew Cuomo groped a woman inside the executive mansion. Unknowable. That was the sexual assault charge. There were other descriptions said to be sexual harassment that seemed bad. Trooper number one talked about the governor creepily touching her body. But to state that plainly, the governor is alleged to have touched her back once and patted her belly once. A former aide named Anna Liss said she came back to reflect on what happened during her time in the governor's mansion and regards it not as harassment, but as inappropriate. Several women define their harassment as Cuomo putting a hand on their backs to pose for photographers' photos. So my question to Melissa was this. Do you think the Attorney General, Letitia James, who put together the report that pretty much chased the governor out of Albany, do you think she at all hurt her credibility by crediting all the accusers, even ones where the quote-unquote harassment barely rises to the level of actionable. For instance, a woman who says that Andrew Cuomo touched her shirt, not her breasts, her shirt. The other argument would be something like, by documenting all these accusations seriously, and by documenting even what might be low-level harassment, you establish a pattern of boundary violations that goes to serve 
the overall narrative to establish the overall picture. What do you think, Melissa? I think that Tish James, <laughs> the press has given her such a pass. Tish James have, should have zero credibility with how she dealt with that report if anyone actually took five minutes to look at it. She took... Weapon, she weaponized everyday interactions where actually of the 11, three of the women say, if you read their transcripts, I don't consider the sexual harassment. Three. There's three people in that report who were not state employees. They were people like you just described on a rope line who it's like touched near her collar on her shirt. This woman, which the New York Times put on the front page where the governor put his hands on her face at a, at a wedding as he's literally walking around the room, kissing everyone on the cheek, posing for photographs, doing what politicians do. Um, so there's three women who were non-employees where it was things like that, like Joe Biden rope line kind of things. So that's six. So you peel away like those six just as a starting point and you're left with the, these last five. And it's like the things that you're left with is one woman that says, oh, he commented to me in Italian and I don't speak Italian, but I think he was referring to my looks. And he was I was sitting across a desk like 15 feet away. And he commented on my necklace, and I think it's because he was really looking down my shirt, okay? That's one of the remaining five. And then you have Charlotte Boylan, or Charlotte Bennett, Lindsay Boylan, the trooper, and, uh, and Brittany Camisso, which are the more complicated ones. But I believe as a woman who's fought, not just with words, but actually negotiated legislation, actually used the power of my position to change laws in order to make it easier for women to make claims of sexual harassment, to extend the, st the statute of limitation on rape, et cetera. I think it hurts women writ large on this topic when you cheapen it like that. And you create this environment where more serious claims or real claims are not taken seriously. And it's easy for people to dismiss it and say, this is bullshit. This isn't real. And that's where I think we're sort of teetering on right now, where the Me Too movement, which I think played a really critical role early on in exposing Har not just Harvey Weinstein, but, you know, sort of rank abuse across a lot of industries of powerful men in talking about things like rape. And sexual harassment in exchange for, you know, roles on the silver screen or promotions or this or that. And it's sort of cheapened it now down to kissing somebody on the cheek or putting your hand on someone's waist for a photograph. And when that happens, you lose the script. And so I think that what Tish did actually hurts a lot of what so many women fought for in making it more easy for people who would never have subscribed to sort of that part of the women's movement to just be dismissive of it and say, this is all horseshit. A tenant of understanding sexual harassment, as I understand it, is that the alleged harasser doesn't get to define boundaries. So even if it's not a felony, maybe not even a misdemeanor, if Trooper One, who is in the employ of the governor, is standing in an elevator and he runs his finger from her neck to her spine and says, hey, you, he doesn't get to define if that's acceptable. She does. Now, maybe, I would say certainly, he shouldn't lose his job for that. But you even told him, don't get involved when Charlotte Bennett or other survivors of sexual assault um, start telling you about their experience. You're not there to solve their experience. Uh, maybe, you know, put them in touch with an expert or a lawyer. You even said that. I did say that. I mean, on the Charlotte Bennett thing, and he and I approach this very differently. And I have a close family member who's a victim of sexual assault. He has a close family member that is a victim of sexual assault. My reaction to that in having dealt with my family member is 
that unless you are trained in that field, you should not be engaging with sexual assault victims and talking about their trauma and how it's impacted their relationships. Um, it's just not, it's not a place that you should be. And he knew that I felt that way. And I said that I said as much to him on Charlotte, the trooper I'll tell you is, is fascinating because the trooper sort of sent the whole thing off a cliff, right? Like when that was in the mm -hmm. report, yeah. everyone was like, oh my God, a state trooper, everything else can be political. And Lindsay Boylan can be dismissed because she's running for office and all these other things. But the trooper was this thing where everyone sort of like, you know, it was a breaking point. And I was sued by the trooper which by the way was a, was an incredible thing to be sued by someone you don't know. She actually testified under oath. She only ever said hello and goodbye to me. And then a few weeks after the governor resigned, the administration's over, my lawyer calls and says, this trooper's lawyer reached out, Wigdor, this firm Wigdor. They do a lot of sexual yeah. harassment cases, yeah. lots. And they yeah. reached out and they Most. said, we're gonna, unless you wanna privately settle with us, we're gonna sue you. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? I mean, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on your show. You said no. I think you have to. But I was like, fine, yeah. I've never <laughs> even met this woman. Like, I'm sorry, she's entitled to what from me, and what is her claim? And so my my lawyers put in for a motion to dismiss, and I was dismissed from the case a couple of weeks ago. Um, but in the meantime, while there was this year long case pending, and I was in the case, I was sort of like, well, I'm here. I want to learn everything there is to learn about this and understand how the process works. So I started sitting in on the depositions of these troopers and I'm watching them be cross-examined. And what Tish James put forward in her report versus what I'm watching in these depositions, it's the corruption knows no bounds. She she puts in, you know, the, they try to make it sound so sexual that he touched her stomach as he walked by her at a public space or like at an event. And I don't know if they said between her breasts and her vagina. I mean, I guess anything like your shoulder. Trooper, this was, yeah, I have it right here. Yeah. As Trooper One went ahead of the governor to hold a door open for him, the governor placed the palm of his hand on her belly button and slid it across her waist to her right hip where her gun was holstered. Trooper One felt violated as the governor intentionally touched her in intimate locations between her breasts and vagina. I read that, I said, wait, her what does that mean? And then I realized, oh, it was just a reference to the earlier sentence, the belly touch. Right, but like- Ain't good if it really happened. But you know, why do you put it in there except to be as incendiary as possible? Exactly, and what was crazier is I was sitting in this deposition with a male trooper who's talking about his interactions with Cuomo. And he gets asked these questions. Did the governor, did you ever see the governor kiss a trooper on the cheek? And the guy was like, well, yeah. And they said, who? And he's like, well, me. The governor would give me a kiss on the cheek. And they said, did you ever see the governor touch anyone's stomach? And he's like, well, yeah. Whenever troopers were holding the door open, he would walk by, he would pat you on the belly, like as like a, you know, like a recognition or he would touch your shoulder or he'd pat you, yeah. slap you on the back. Because he was always, they were like, it was his way of acknowledging us. He didn't like that. Otherwise it looked like we were a piece of furniture. But I'm sitting in there and I'm watching these depositions and I'm like, Andrew Cuomo resigned for this? Like this was the attorney general's investigation that millions and millions of dollars were spent on? Like, it's just, it was so clearly weaponized and sensationalized and the press didn't do their job. The press didn't scrutinize anything. The transcripts came out. They were excited to, you know, sort of take the text messages between me and Chris Cuomo and blow them up, but ignore clear instances of perjury or ignore where women themselves are saying, I was not sexually harassed and ask the question, why was this woman 
in this report to begin with. So it's yeah. just the last- Or years later after his resignation, it comes out that another of his uh, main accusers had worked to file a false sexual harassment claim while in college. But that is not reported at the time. And even after it was reported, you know, I didn't know about it. And I've been covering and following this case extremely closely. And it's written by someone I know personally that got no pickup. Yeah. Well, look, this is the other thing, right? It's the press was was very excited to what's the next accuser? What's the next number? One, two, three, four, five. As you said, as I go through them in my book, you know, on a list, who was this woman who was a junior assistant in 2000 and, you know, I think it was 2015, where I watched, I sat in on her deposition a, a couple of months ago, and she literally sat there and said, I wasn't sexually harassed, and I didn't understand why I was just thrown into this group of women who said they were sexually harassed. Like, yeah, he would call me sweetheart. He would call me darling. I think it's because he didn't know my name. You know, like he kissed me on the cheek, but it didn't actually bother me. So like sitting in on these depositions, I was like, like I felt like I was having an out of body experience where I'm like, no, everything I thought was exactly as it, it was. And this was an attorney general who, and we said it from the beginning, wanted to run for governor, who exploited this great responsibility that was turned over to her to do what was supposed to be a very serious report. And she omitted exculpatory evidence. She hyped up things that weren't there to begin with. She labeled things sexual harassment that weren't. She actually didn't believe all women because in three instances, she listed women who themselves said they weren't sexually harassed. And the press never to this day have held her accountable. And she's never answered a question about it. Anytime she gets asked about a report, she just says, you know, the governor is a serial sexual harasser who's trying to re-victimize women. She won't answer any specific questions, but no one's ever held her feet to the fire, which I just think holds a, starts a very, very dangerous precedent moving forward because it's like the playbook. You want to get rid of a political opponent? Here you go. But he did resign, and he was a politician who defined politics as hardball and pressure points and using whatever advantages you have, and he was undone by that. So by the end, I mean, you may be right that there were uh, people weren't adhering to the highest ideals of ethical behavior, but that was not how he and your administration defined and played the game up until that point. I don't know that. I, I mean, look, we played hardball. We didn't yeah. we, we didn't like make things up. We didn't like fabricate and manufacture cases against people in order to, you know, ruin to take them out of office. Like I would say that there's a difference between playing hardball and having sharp elbows and knowing how to play the game. And yes, in doing that over time, you accumulate political enemies versus what she did, which I think was totally corrupting her office for personal political gain. That's a fine answer. I'm glad I asked. I'm glad you answered. I want to ask you about one more aspect because it's not in the book. Maybe it came out too late. New York Times revealed that Andrew Cuomo's sister was, well, I'll read the headline, the secret hand behind the women who stood by Cuomo, his sister, for nearly two years, Madeline Cuomo quietly worked with grassroots activists to help smear her brother's accuser. You know, the lead talks about the leader of a small but devoted group of mostly older women who banded together online to defend Mr. Cuomo. It turns out her tweets had been secretly ordered up by Madeline Cuomo, his sister. What about that? 
I've never talked to Madeline about it. I've never talked to any of those women about it. So I don't have much to say on the topic. I will say what I found was fascinating was that the New York Times dedicated like 3000 words to that story and put it on the front page and have yet to cover, you know, subsequent depositions that have come out from women saying, I told Tish James I wasn't sexually harassed. I don't know why I was in the report. Like the selective coverage of what the New York Times has chosen to do vis-a-vis Andrew Cuomo and the Tish James report and all of that, I think speaks volumes about the New York Times. I think, I'm sure you agree, that by the end, after the sexual assault allegations and the COVID allegations hit, what happened is you had no friends left in the press. Because I do think that the New York Times earnestly believed the sexual assault allegations. They were, and New York Magazine to some extent, were propelling that coverage. They took Charlotte Bennett, Lindsay Boylan, uh, Wall Street Journal was uh, was very instrumental actually in um, advancing a number of their charges. They took those allegations really seriously. So you lost, in terms of the New York Times, the more college-educated liberals, uh, the sympathy of them. Then you, of course, lost the New York Post because you weren't a conservative. The Daily News normally liked you because you appealed to uh, non-college-educated Democrats, but once your black support uh, slipped away, they had no reason to support you. And I guess the Albany Times Union, which is another big player in this, they just kind of see who has power in Albany and try to describe it rather than shake it up. And once your power was loosening, it was an opportunity for them. Not that especially Times Union did anything wrong, although maybe you would quibble. But that was my assessment. You had no factions left to tell your story. And no matter how much we say, oh, there's alternative media or an opportunity to go around the mainstream media, I think a successful New York Democrat doesn't have as many of those opportunities as, say, some other types of Republicans. Would you agree with my assessment of how you were boxed in by the end? Yeah, although I do want to just um, correct you on one thing, because you said sexual assault many times. It was sexual harassment allegations. Right. Um, not sexual assault. But no, I, I agree with you. I think that the, the right will always protect itself and its own. You know, look at Fox News, look at the New York Post, look at the Wall Street Journal. Yes, there have been some breaks with Trump, which I would argue only happened after 2022 when his endorsed candidates cost them pivotal seats. But you know, 99% of the time they protect their own and the democratic left-leaning mainstream media is just not like that. And they were, you know, the Times was on a mission to take us down, I think. Um, The Post, certainly, they were wearing it on their sleeve. Um, And at the end of the day, you know, any sort of nuance or any sort of gray was like lost in the sea of black and white and there was no way to have any sort of a meaningful conversation in the press. Where do you see your career going from here? I mean, it's an interesting question. I've been doing some consulting. I was writing for the Daily Beast. I do commentary for a couple of radio stations. Um, But as I write at the end of the book, I don't think I'm done yet. Um, I just- Are you poisoned in the kind of democratic (laughs) circles that once would be thrilled to have hired you? No, that hasn't been my experience at all. Actually, shortly after we resigned, I started to get quiet outreach from people saying, are you taking clients? And otherwise, I think I was sort of prepared to take a long hiatus and, you know, become a person again. And I was trying to figure out, you know, how to pick up the broken pieces of my existence. I was going through a divorce. 
um, and dealing with the fallout from everything. And I immediately started getting outreach from people saying, are you taking clients? And so I think regardless of everything that happened, I, you know, have experience and, and value. I think that, uh, people pay attention to what I say. And I think that there's a real leadership void and a lack of competence right now at all levels of government. And I don't know for how long I'll be willing to sit it out. Melissa DeRosa served as communications director, chief of staff and secretary to Governor Andrew Cuomo. Her new book is What's Left Unsaid. And by the way, there's a lot unsaid, even though this conversation got to a lot of it. My life at the center of power, politics and crisis. Melissa, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And now the spiel. I've been appalled and aggrieved to see the form that some pro-Palestinian protests have taken with cover given to Hamas and the conflation of a right of resistance with moral blindness towards whatever form that resistance takes. But the reason I know about these sentiments is I live in a country with a media that freely reports such sentiments and also a country that literally bans the banning of public utterances of these sentiments. Israel also is such a country with freedoms and speech protections, but as can be imagined in a time of war, there are elements within Israeli society that would like upsetting or undermining sentiments to become illegal sentiments. On the Times of Israel Daily Briefing last week, Berenit Gorin touched on a few examples. Minister of Communications Shlomo Kari uh, proposing a bill that will give him power uh, to arrest journalists, to close down not just foreign, but also Israeli media if he feels that it is hurting the the efforts, you know, the war efforts of, of the state of Israel. That's scary. You know, I don't know that it will pass in any way, shape or form. I think he's a provocateur, but it just does say something or about the, the state of mind of, of the of the ministers in our government. But he's not the only one. I mean, the uh, commissioner of the police, Kobi Shabtai, has announced that he won't allow any uh, demonstrations whatsoever in favor of Palestinians. Now, this is not just about being in favor of Hamas. This is about being in favor of Palestinians. We do need to remind ourselves there are innocent people there who have been held hostage for more than a decade by Hamas, and and they're being killed too. So, but any show of sympathy towards them is now not allowed. And when asked about this, Shabtai's response was, "If they like Israel, they can stay in Israel. If they like the Gazans, they can move to Gaza. I'll take them on a bus there," which is incredible. It's incredible to hear this from an official. Gorin went on to detail education officials seeking to report and punish pro-Palestinian speech anywhere on their campuses. It's disturbing but predictable that a liberal democracy would entertain such restrictions. But it is good that journalists like Gorin and the Times of Israel are clearly critical of such moves. In the U.S., that spirit is also at play, though I think with slightly lower stakes, but not low stakes. Shai Davide, an Israeli-American Columbia University Business School professor, spoke out on his university's campus last week. In reaction to what he characterized as the inadequate response of Columbia University President Manush Shafiq, he told those attending a vigil to turn on their phones so that his words might go viral. They did. And the president of the university is allowing these 
pro-terror student organizations to march on our campuses. Shafiq's letter began, I was devastated by the horrific attack on Israel this weekend and the ensuing violence that is affecting so many people. It did not, nor has she in that time condemned Hamas or condemned or defined any of the actions as terrorism. It also, the letter did not, unlike letters infamously signed by student groups at Harvard and the president of the Student Bar Association of NYU, nothing that Shafiq said went out of its way to put responsibility on Israel. Davide expanded on his 10-minute speech with a 30-ish tweet thread today in which he said, quote, students' lives are on the line. He claimed his children's lives are on the line. His seven-year-old and two-year-old are not safe, he says, quote, I fear, because there are student organizations on my own campus who see my beautiful children as legitimate targets. Then he addressed the thousands of worried parents who want to make sure their children are protected from harm, parents of students at schools like his, and he writes, to all those parents, I reply, no, your children are not safe. His remedy is for university presidents to be more forceful in their denunciations of campus protesters to protect other students. Safety can be achieved, he says in his video, through more speech by presidents, but also less or no such speech by protesters. And I'm talking to you, I'm speaking to you as a dad, And I want you to know, we cannot protect your children from pro-terror student organizations because the president of Columbia University will not speak out. I totally disagree with Davide's solution, though emotionally and as a father, I can understand the horror that he's feeling at the moment. The inspiration for his Cree de corps is not confusing to me. At one point in his tweets, Davidai cites, quote, my research into behavioral psychology. If my research into behavioral psychology has taught me, and it's clear what he's up to in his arguments. First of all, he is sincere. He can't believe that chance of from the river to the sea or the construction that all responsibility is on Israel. Can't believe that. He can't fathom why so many would be so callous and so many in leadership so cowardly. I'm right with him on all of that. He said colleges would never allow a pro death of George Floyd protest. Indeed, there is a case where a Skidmore professor participated in a Blue Lives Matter protest, which is far more modest than a pro-Derek Chauvin protest would have been. Pro-Derek Chauvin, that is the equivalent of praise for Hamas. And this professor from Skidmore He was harassed. He was lied about. He was forced to fight for his reputation against uninterest on the part of the university's president, who was operating from the same set of constituency management considerations as the president of Columbia is operating now. But that professor survived. And at the time, defenders of free speech were absolutely correct in saying that it was wrong to call for his punishment or his firing. A certain type of defender of free speech, me, for instance, thought it was actually fine for students to express their displeasure, but not to demand his firing, certainly not to harass him or make up stories about him. Arguments begetting arguments should be what we engage in. Feelings not being conflated with safety or protection is another hallmark of good productive discourse. And that's where I differ from Davidai. 
I do not think in the case of pro-Hamas chants or putting all responsibility on Israel, it is one of those situations where reasonable people can disagree. I do not think the arguments that back or excuse Hamas are reasonable. But I also differ from Professor Davidai, and I differ greatly from the Israeli would-be censors. I understand, as a creature of the academy and as a student of human behavior, why David I would quickly reach for arguments framed as protection, because those arguments work in this day and age. But that's not a good thing. The last thing I will say about the request that university presidents say more, I do wish they'd say more. It is possible to say more. Even in the Ivy League, it's possible to say more. Better. Princeton's president, Christopher L. Eisgruber, noted, quote, even in a world wearied and torn by violence and hatred, Hamas's murder and kidnapping of hundreds of Israelis over the past weekend is among the most atrocious of terrorist acts. Yup, that didn't seem hard to me. But there is an element of compelled speech inherent in the Davidi criticism that I'm uncomfortable with. You can ask, hey, why haven't I, Mike Pascal, why haven't I adequately condemned the killing of a six-year-old boy by his landlord, apparently deranged with anti-Muslim animus? Or why haven't I talked about on this show ever so far the documented Israeli settler violence against innocent Palestinians in the West Bank? I haven't. Is it that I don't care? Is it that I don't care as much? I'm not outraged by these acts as I am outraged by the acts of Hamas or by the pro-Hamas sentiments of some students? No, it's not that. But if someone were to criticize me or press me or demand I say more and do better, I would object to those demands. And university presidents, they are leaders of communities, so maybe they should say more. But I have seen that exact complaint, say more, say more forcefully, do it now, do it more prominently. I've seen that directed at everyone from elected Democrats who've been perfectly condemnatory of Hamas, to Kamala Harris, to The Rock, criticized for not saying more, saying it louder, saying it more urgently. And I do understand the anguish. But it is in an anguish time when principles come in handy. Mine are pretty clear. More speech rather than less. And don't let the flaws of your opponents set the standards that you live by. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Recording facilities this week by Yamamoto Sedaris Industries. The Gist's COO and CLFAO is Michelle Pesca. The Gist is produced in association in conjunction with AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Gpru, Dupru, and thanks for listening.